Beethoven Orchestra View. Orchestra View? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to to eighty-seven. Oh, that view is tremendous. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Beccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning in to episode 68 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Moving on with Jazz Appreciation Month, we come to a particular type of jazz from a particular type of city, New Orleans. There were many great and memorable musicians that came out of that town, and we've already featured several of them on this show. But when the Franklin Mint puts together an entire box set around the kings of that kind of music, you need to sit up and take notice. So... Get ready to hear the early genres begin to mix together on Jelly Roll's keyboard in Volume 68, King Morton. Now, we'll once again refer to the included booklet for the introductions to each of the songs. King Porter Stomp was Morton's most famous composition. During the swing era, hardly a band failed to include it in its repertory, though few players and listeners had any notion who Morton was. This recording of it brought about a most unusual encounter in the studio between Morton and King Oliver, the first jazz summit meeting on record. Morton shows his medal as an accompanist, and Oliver shows his respect for Morton's piece, playing it much as written. For the final section, he picks up his famous plunger mute for the so-called wah-wah effects that he probably originated. This was recorded in December of 1924.
There's King Oliver and Jelly Roll Morton with King Porter Stomp. Yep, just a piano and a cornet. Written by Jelly Roll Morton. Okay, why this album for this episode? Well, as I work my way through this great collection from the Franklin Mint during Jazz Appreciation Month, I know we need to hear from a great pianist from the genre. And what better one to feature than the guy who really started to mix all the styles that would eventually become jazz and who was famous for all those cutting contests held in uh, people's homes. I really love listening to his piano work on these records. It swings from the heavy-handed ragtime to the soft and gentle, like this next one. Mamie's Blues, as Jelly Roll Morton tells us in his spoken introduction over a soft piano background, was the first blues I no doubt ever heard in my life. His recreation recorded near the end of his days is gentle and haunting. Morton's voice was not a great one, but his singing here is perfect, as is the delicate piano playing. This is one of the most beautiful blues performances ever put on record, and it was recorded December 16th, 1939. This is the first blues I have no doubt heard in my life. Mamie Desdoom, this was her favorite blues. She hardly could play anything else more, but she really could play this now. Of course, to get in on it, to try to learn it, I made myself the, the can rusher. Two nineteen done took my baby away. Two nineteen took my baby away. Two seventeen bring her back someday. Stood on the corner with her feet just soaking wet. Her feet was wet. Stood on a corner with her feet soaking wet. Begging each and every man that she met. If you can't give a dollar, give me a lousy dime. Can't give a dollar, give me a lousy dime. I want to feed that hungry man of mine. Thank you. 
Just Jelly Roll and His Piano on Mamie's Blues, written by Mamie De Dumas. Now, let's take a closer look at the record I chose for this episode. Jelly Roll Morton, King Oliver, Sidney Bichette, Kings of New Orleans Jazz. The label is the Franklin Mint Record Society. Now, of course, we're only going to listen to the first one of this set, which is numbered FM Jazz 017. It's the greatest jazz recordings of all time series from the Institute of Jazz Studies official archive collection. It's a four vinyl LP compilation, red vinyl and box set format. The box is red as well. It's Country of Release of Sweden, released in 1983, and its genre is jazz. Now, we will hear both sides of record one. We'll listen to seven of the 12 songs on this record. The liner notes in this booklet are extensive before they get to describing each tune. So I'm only going to read the first four paragraphs and the first two are very short. The music in this collection celebrates the contribution of New Orleans-born musicians to the birth, growth, and lasting fame of jazz. There can be little doubt that New Orleans played a unique role in the development of jazz, though this role was overly romanticized by the first generation of jazz historians. This, in turn, led to attempts to question the city's legitimacy as the birthplace of the music. Today, of course, New Orleans takes great pride in its claim to parentage and promulgates its offici it officially in many ways, from travel posters to a jazz museum and the naming of streets and parks. But it wasn't always so. Louis Armstrong had died by the time his native city got around to putting up a statue of him. In 1918, the city's leading newspaper, The Times-Picayne, denied in an editorial that New Orleans was responsible for the new music that was sweeping America. The city wanted no part of this disreputable, tainted, and barbaric music, the editorialist stated, thus joining a chorus of self-appointed guardians of culture that grew increasingly shrill as the jazz age unfolded. It took decades for this sort of prejudice to disappear. In 1931, when Armstrong returned in triumph to his hometown, there was no official participation in the parade that welcomed him. Other slights during that visit caused Louis to shun appearances in New Orleans until 1947, when he was officially greeted and crowned King of the Zulus in the Mardi Gras parade. Today... Jazz is a key element in New Orleans tourism, and tourism is the key factor in the city's economic health. Okay, let's see what Discogs.com has priced this album at. The highest price came in at $24.99, lowest at $7.20, with a median at $18.15. Now, the last time it was sold on Discogs.com was recently, in fact, just a couple of days before I wrote the script for this episode, March 24th, 2022. Now, my dad's record is not as in good a condition as others in this collection. I'm not sure why. There's lots of hiss, especially in the quiet section. Now, the cover and the plastic sleeves are in very good condition, so I'm not sure why the records are not. The booklet is also in good condition. However, this one has a little crease in the bottom like it got caught at one point when the box lid closed. Well, I will value my dad's box set, which cover in itself is still in really good condition, at $8. Next up, The Chant, 
stems from Morton's first recording date for Victor and finds him at the helm of the best band he ever put together on records. All hands but George Mitchell, the trumpeter, were from New Orleans. And it has been said the Mortons, that Morton's achievement with this band is the crowning glory of New Orleans style, which by 1926 was already going out of fashion. The chant, however, was quite a modernistic piece for its day. It was written by the New Orleans Rhythm King's first pianist, Mel Stitzel, and was also recorded by Fletcher Henderson's big band. Perhaps Morton wished to return the compliment for having recorded with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. It is a lively piece with shifting tonalities and plenty of breaks, though there are solo spots all around, notably for Omer Simeon's brilliant clarinet. The essence of the performance is the splendid ensemble work and the variety of textures that Morton achieves with this New Orleans small group. It was recorded September 15, 1926.
the chant by the Red Hot Peppers. Did I almost add the word chili to that group title? <laughs> you bet I did. We had more band members than just those listed in the intro, so here they all are. George Mitchell on cornet, Kid Ori on trombone, Omer Simeon on clarinet, Johnny St. Sire on banjo, John Lindsay on string bass, Andrew Hilaire on drums, the arranger and on piano, Jelly Roll Morton, and it was composed by Mel Stitzel. Now time to learn about this episode's feature artist. And this is from Biography.com. Jelly Roll Morton was an American pianist and songwriter best known for influencing the formation of modern-day jazz during the 1920s. He cut his teeth as a pianist in New Orleans' bordellos. An early innovator in the jazz genre, he rose to fame as the leader of Jelly Roll Morton's Red Hot Peppers in the 1920s. Ferdinand Joseph Lamothe was born in New Orleans on October 20th, 1890, though some sources say 1885, mostly him, as we'll hear about in this episode's interesting side note. The son of racially mixed Creole parents, he was a mix of African, French, and Spanish. He eventually adopted the last name of his stepfather, Morton. Morton learned to play piano at age 10, and within a few years he was playing in the Red Light District Bordellos, where he earned the nickname Jelly Roll. Blending the styles of ragtime and minstrelsy with dance rhythms, he was at the forefront of a movement that would soon be known as jazz. Morton left home as a teenager and toured the country, earning money as a musician, vaudeville comic, gambler, and pimp. Brash and confident, he enjoyed telling people that he had invented jazz. While that claim was dubious, he is believed to have been the first jazz musician to put his arrangements to paper with original Jelly Roll Blues, the genre's first published work. After five years in Los Angeles, Morton moved to Chicago in 1922 and produced his first recordings the following year. Beginning in 1926, he led Jelly Roll Morton's Red Hot Peppers, a seven- or eight-piece band comprised of musicians who were well-versed in the New Orleans ensemble style. The Red Hot Peppers earned national fame with such hits as the as Black Bottom Stomp and Smokehouse Blues, their sound and style laying the foundation for the swing movement that would soon become popular. Morton's four-year run with the group marked the pinnacle of his career as it provided a prominent platform to his display, for him to display his immense talents as a composer and a pianist. Morton moved to New York in 1928, where he recorded such tracks as Kansas City Stomp and Tanktown Bump. Despite making use of homophonically harmonized ensembles and allowing more room for solo improvisation in his music, he remained true to his New Orleans roots, producing music that gradually came to be viewed as old-fashioned within the industry. As a result, Morton fell out of the limelight and struggled to earn a living during the bleak times of the Great Depression. Morton was managing a jazz club in Washington, D.C. in the late 1930s when he met folklorist Alan Lomax. Beginning in 1938, Lorax recorded a series of interviews for the Library of Congress in which Morton offered an oral history of the origins of jazz and demonstrated early styles on the piano. The recordings helped rekindle interest in Morton and his music, but poor health prevented him from staging a legitimate comeback, and he died in Los Angeles, California on July 10, 1941. Although Morton may not have been the inventor of jazz, he is regarded by fans and experts as one of the art form's great innovators. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998 and honored with a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2005, underscoring the far-ranging impact of his influence as 
a musician. Now let's finish up our selections from side one. Original Jelly Roll Blues, one of Morton's earliest compositions, is performed by the same personnel as the chant, though Johnny St. Sire switches from banjo to guitar. The piece is a wonderful transformation of the most basic structure in jazz, the 12-bar blues. The two strains are both blues-based, the first in B-flat, the second in E-flat. The second is also marked by a tango rhythm. Jelly called it the Spanish tinge and claimed it as yet another first. His gift for melodic and textural variation is once again fully displayed. These performances retain the essential spontaneous quality of the New Orleans idiom, yet every element is carefully worked out with a composer's imagination. Original Jelly Roll Blues was recorded December 16th, 
Jelly Roll Morton's Original Hot Peppers again with Original Jelly Roll Blues. Now we'll go right into our bonus cut for this episode. Red Hot Pepper. I see a theme here. Finds Jelly in New York City trying to come to terms with the trend toward larger bands. He has 10 pieces here and uses them well, but the music retains a New Orleans flavor, especially in the final write-out, which has the clarinet on top and all the horns improvising collectively. On the modern side, Morton handles riffs authoritatively. The nice trumpet work is by Ed Swayze. Paul Barnes, a New Orleans musician, does the clarinet work. Though discographers insist on listing him on soprano sax only, which he plays on another piece recorded that same day. That day was December 6, Red Hot Pepper by Jelly Roll Morton 
and his orchestra. On trumpets were Ed Anderson and Edwin Swayze. Trombone was William Cato. Clarinet and alto sax were Russell Prokop and Paul Barnes. Tenor sax was Joe Garland. On guitar was Lee Blair. Brace, I'm sorry, brass bass was Bass Moore. You'll understand why the slip there. Manzi Johnson was on drums. And Jelly Roll Morton, piano and arranger. Time now for this episode's interesting side note. And it has to do with how Morton altered some facts to make himself out to be bigger than he was. Jelly Roll Morton was probably born in 1890 rather than 1885 as he has maintained. The reasons why Morton wanted to appear older, thus going against an ingrained habit of show folk who usually make themselves younger as times go by, uh, was that he claimed to be the man who had invented jazz, an event, he said, that took place in 1902, the year in which he insisted he composed his famous original Jelly Roll Blues, though it wasn't copyrighted until 1915. This was designed to steal a, a march, slang for gain an advantage over someone by acting before they do, steal a march on W.C. Handy, the so-called father of the blues, with whom Morton conducted a famous public feud in 1939. Handy's Memphis Blues, the first published blues piece, was copyrighted in 1912. Handy considered Morton an upstart, but could not reasonably claim to have been a jazz musician himself, though he apparently was the first musician to write down, codify, and publish blues songs. Morton dismissed Handy's work, including the world-famous St. Louis Blues, as mere copying out of public domain tunes, whereas Morton saw himself as a genuine composer of original music and the first to formally merge elements of ragtime and blues into jazz. Morton's hyperbolic and egocentric claims were often counterproductive, but at the time he made them, he was an unjustly forgotten man. In the sudden interest the public was taking in the origins of jazz, spurred by the enormous success of swing music in the late 1930s, Morton saw a chance to regain the public ear and eye, hence his tendency to overstate his case. Musicians associated with Morton in his peak years of fame recalled that he had always been prone to exaggeration and boastfulness, so his tendency to overstate his case is understandable, and it did serve to attract the public's attention. Freakish, in the jazz parlance of the time, meant strange and weird. Thus, King Oliver's use of mutes was described as freak effects in record advertisements. Jelly's fancy piano display piece is rightly named, for he experiments with various modern harmonies. Nevertheless, the music doesn't lose its sunny flavor, and the rhythm is strictly Morton, with one foot still in ragtime. Freakish was recorded July 28, 1929.
Freakish, a Jelly Roll Morton solo piece. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm glad I found a way to share one of my favorite parts of my dad's collection, the greatest jazz recordings of all time. And I really liked the change of pace with this great piano player. There were a couple of more tunes that I really wanted to get to, like That's Like It Oughta Be and The London Blues, but we still got a bonus track in. So, we'll finish with a tune you've already heard a couple of times on this show. High Society, the most famous of all New Orleans marching tunes, though it was composed by a native of New England, gets a rousing treatment from the all-star group enlisted by Morton for his 1939 comeback recording session for Victor. The centerpiece of any version of High Society is the clarinet solo, originally scored for piccolo in the middle section. Here, we are treated to it twice, First from Sidney Bechet's Majestic Soprano Sax, then from Albert Nicholas's Fleet New Orleans Clarinet. The rhythm is solidly anchored in Singleton's drums and fellow New Orleans Wellman Broad's bass while Jelly romps away at the piano. Clearly, he had lost none of his arranging and leadership skills. High Society was recorded September 14, 1939. <laughs>
High Society, written in 1901 by Porter Steele and performed there by Jelly Roll Morton's New Orleans Jazzmen, with Sidney DeParis on trumpet, Claude Jones on trombone, Albert Nicholas on clarinet, Sidney Bechet on soprano sax, Happy Caldwell on tenor sax, Lawrence Lucci on guitar, Wellman Broad on string bass, Zuddy Singleton on drums, and of course, Jelly Roll Morton on piano, and he is the arranger of that tune. And there you have more celebration of Jazz Appreciation Month with pianist and composer Jelly Roll. So thanks for tuning in to Volume 68, King Morton, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to SpinningMyDad'sVinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 69, Little Jazz on Horn, Part 1. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. ¶¶